This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Richard Hecht. I'm a professor in the Department of Religious Studies, as many of you know, but some of you perhaps don't know my name. And this is, I think, our 23rd year of programming uh, for the Taubman Jewish Studies Symposia. We began 23 years ago, and the years have gone by so quickly. Um, but we couldn't have a better person um, to initiate this uh, year, this 23rd year of the Taubman than Ayelet Gunder Goshen. Um, I'm not going to give a formal introduction to her. Um, but I simply want to point out that we have our schedule for you, and we have it in two forms. We have this form, uh, the larger form, um, which has the entire program for the year in it, uh, like this, with uh, the various people who are speaking. Um, but then uh, we also have this neat um, bookmark with the entire program on it. And the idea of this bookmark is that you won't throw it away so that you'll go over to this table over here afterward and you'll buy a book and uh, you'll put the bookmark in the book. And we have, we have um, um, two of Ayelet Gunder Goshen's uh, books that are on sale right afterward and she'll sign them for you. And uh, it's the middle of November does anyone know what starts beginning of December? Right, Hanukkah. And you need a gift. And so if, if you have one of her books, buy another one and give it to a father or mother. Um, um, and, it, and it saves you going downtown, right? You just put it away and get a book, you know, a bookmark, put it in there. Um, you don't want to miss... Um, um, getting a, a novel by Ayelet uh, Gunder Goshen. And over the years, we have had um, many, many great Israeli writers. I was thinking uh, earlier that uh, one of our first speakers in the first or second year was uh, the uh, Jerusalem and Israeli poet Yehuda Amichai. And I remember one of my friends, um, she did a broadside of his, one of his poems and gave it to him at dinner, and he gave her a kiss on the cheek. Um, and she said, months after it, I asked her, did she like the uh, uh, talk with Yehuda Amichai? And she said, I haven't washed my cheek since. <laughs> and so we've always had wonderful Israeli writers. And I think Ayelet Gunder Goshen is a writer that we will hear, for, hear about and read for many, many years into the future. Um, some of you who may have read a novel of hers already before The Liar, her most recent novel, I understand that, um, that the Jewish Federation and the Brandeis Book Club uh, read Waking Lion, uh, which is her second novel, as part of the book club reading. My students are reading Waking Lion. But you'll want to read the first novel, which is one Night Markovich, uh, which is an extraordinary novel, really fun to read. It's, um, it's published by Pushkin Press, uh, as well as um, the, uh, the Liar. Um, so she has an extraordinary ability, I think, to capture 
human predicaments, um, almost impossible situations that she creates in her narrative skill and art and make those impossible situations come alive for us and also connect with our lives. So please welcome Ayelet Gunder Goshen to talk about her newest novel, The Liar. Do you hear me well? Okay. Uh, as Shalom, hello everyone, and thank you for coming here in such a beautiful day. I know that it's very tempting to just go out to the beach, so the idea that you're here inside with me right now and not there in the water, I'm, I'm grateful. Um, I will talk about the liar, and maybe we'll have time for questions later if you want to ask about something different, about waking lines and about the relationship between the two of them. Um, the Liar is based on a real story, just like Waking Lions. Um, it's a story that happened in Israel a few years ago when an Israeli woman uh, accused um, a migrant of sexual assault, of trying to sexually assault her. And because Israel has a very big debate about immigration policy, this real event became something that the news were very busy about because this woman was publicly hugged, everybody cared about her. She became the symbol of what happens when we have too many migrants coming into the country um, from Africa. And one of my friends, who is a public defense attorney, was representing uh, the guy who was accused of uh, sexually uh, assaulting this woman. And we met for lunch one day, me and this friend of mine, and she came very, very happy to lunch. And I asked her, why are you so happy about? And she said, I found a way to prove that this woman was lying and that the guy didn't try to sexually assault her and that this is all one big lie. And she came so happy because she was the one defending the, the guy who was supposed to go to prison for for a number of years, and, and she, she believed him right from the beginning, but she's a public defense attorney. She believes everyone. But this time she really had, she, she figured out how to prove that it was a lie, and really shortly after that, the man was released, and the entire public opinion that was before that towards the woman and against the man shifted in a split of a second. So from being the, the public... Um, We'll say hamami alumit. It will be some like the public darling, I think, in English. From being the public darling, she became a sort of an outcast. And my friend, when she talked about her during that lunch, she used the most terrible words. She called her a monster. She called her a psychopath. She called her other words that I won't repeat right now. But she called her in terrible names. And, and I remember I was sitting there, and I'm a clinical psychologist. So I thought, being the, the public defense attorney, I see why she's calling this woman words. I see why she's calling her a monster. But being a clinical psychologist, I don't feel comfortable hearing her calling her a monster because I always think if this person would walk into my clinic, I can't just say, you're a monster, go away from here. I have to try to understand. So I started asking myself, instead of judging this woman, I started asking myself, what kind of person can do such a thing, which was also the, the core questions for Waking Lines. What kind of person 
can do such a thing? And I, th I find it a very important question, both literature and psychotherapy. Instead of judging the people you meet or the people you write about, it's trying to understand them. Rather than saying, this is a terrible person and that's it, it's about asking, could I be this person in under uh, other circumstances? And I started asking myself, could I be this woman? Could I be this girl? Could it be that I could be get caught in such a lie just as she did? Maybe not this specific lie, but maybe another lie. And then I came out of the lunch. I was walking to my studio. And right under my studio in Tel Aviv, there's an ice cream shop. And I go there each time when I get stuck in my writing, which is about once a day. I just go to the ice cream shop. And I entered the ice cream shop. And while I was thinking about what kind of woman can do such a thing, I, I came to the counter. And there was this girl that I met almost every day, but I never remembered her name, even though she has a name tag. And I never really looked at her. I just went inside. And in Israel, I don't know how you do it here, but we point. So if she's standing here, I'm saying, I want chocolate. I want vanilla. So everybody come inside. It's summer in Tel Aviv. And they point and they... It's never quick enough for us, so we say do it faster. And I thought, there's this girl here that nobody looks at her, that nobody rather to, to give her a split of a second. And everybody points at her, but nobody really looks at her. And I thought, what would happen to this girl if people thought that she was sexually harassed? And how, in a moment, from being this girl that the city just runs her over, she would be hugged and, and cared for. And then I thought about the woman who made a real false accusation, and I thought, maybe she's not a monster. Maybe she's somebody that was run over by Tel Aviv, the way cities can do this to people. I, th I think a city can run you over. And maybe that was her one way of escaping this. Maybe that was her one way of getting acknowledged. And I also thought about I think when we call people monsters, it's always a way of distancing ourselves from something that we don't understand or we don't want to understand or we don't want to recognize that this thing is not a monster. It's actually part of human behavior, a behavior that we're capable of, of doing just the same. I remember Israeli author David Grossman, and he wrote this beautiful piece about the Nazi beast. He wrote it in See Under Love, and he later talked about it. And in Hebrew, we often call the Nazis, we call them the Nazi beast. And he said that's a very tricky choice of words. Because when you say about somebody who's doing a terrible thing, when you say he's a beast, you're saying he's not human, right? A beast is not human. And if he's not human, then he doesn't share the same characteristics that we do. He's, we, we put him apart from us, just when, when we say monsters or when we say psychopaths, we're saying this person is so, he's the other. He's not me. He's not part of just basic humans being things that humans sometimes do. So when we call them the Nazi beast, we don't face the question, could we do the same one day? And when we call this woman uh, a crazy woman, we say that lying is a crazy thing. While actually, if we talk about the statistics and I don't want to insult anyone in the audience, but the statistics are that every person sitting right now in this room has either lied since the morning or will lie until sunset. Okay, Th These are 
That's the numbers. It's not once a week. Okay, it's once a day. And then I thought, what's an interesting double standard we have about lies? Because in Israel, to call somebody a liar, it's a very heavy social crime to be called a liar. So I can say about my friend that she's not very bright. And it's okay. I mean, some people are not very bright. It's okay. I can still be her friend. I can say about my friend that she's not very social. It's okay. Some people are not very social. But if I would say about my friend, well, you know, she's sort of a liar, then you will say, so why is she your friend? As if lying is, is such a heavy social crime that we really want to distance ourselves from the liars. But then again, how does it come with the fact that most people tell the lie at least once a day? Oh, if we think about, remember the story of Pinocchio? Okay, the wooden doll. And then if Pinocchio wants to be a real child, then he should stop lying. But then you think, that's interesting. Is being a real child means not lying? Or is it be that lying is what actually makes this wooden doll a real person? Because I think until a boy starts lying, in a way he is the doll of his parents. He's a creation of his parents. And the moment a child lies for the first time, He's no longer a sweet little doll anymore. He's a human. He's capable of using words not just to communicate what he wants. He's also capable of using words as a way of detouring, rather as a way to build a bridge between two people. It's a way to hide yourself from the other person. And so I thought about this girl, this liar. And I thought, I don't want to judge her. I think the Israeli media is doing it right now very well. Back then when the story came out that she was lying. I want to try to understand her. I want to try to write it from her perspective. Because I think she's either called a monster, or today they say this phenomenon doesn't exist. And I have to believe all women, no matter what. And I thought, once again, that's too easy, because almost every human phenomenon exists. And yes, liars also exist. And instead of saying they don't exist, and if they exist, they're crazy women, I'd rather write this whole novel from the perspective of a liar. And then I thought about this ice cream seller. What would happen to her if a customer will come into the shop and hum he wouldn't sexually assault her, but he will humiliate her with words. He will tear her into pieces with words. Because this is also a true story that happened in Israel of uh, a very wealthy man, an owner of a chain of restaurants that went into a car rental uh, place and talking to a woman, and she wasn't fast enough. So he started giving, calling her names, terrible, terrible names. And what he didn't know was that the security cameras were on, and he was filmed, and it was later on the news, and people started not going to this chain of restaurants. And she was a woman of color, and he was uh, like a, an Ashkenazi Jew, very wealthy. And I remember I thought, but what about all the times when the, you know, when the cameras are not on? And then I thought he could go into the ice cream shop and he doesn't sexually assault her, but in a way he does assault her because he talks to her in a way that men in a certain position of power sometimes let themselves talk to women in lower status. And I thought he does assault her in a way. At least in Israel, this is a kind of assault that he will never be held responsible for because you can crush somebody to pieces with your words, 
But if it's not a physical assault and it's not a sexual assault, you just go free. Even though many people I know, they don't remember the time they broke their hand when they were in second grade. They remember much more the pain they felt when somebody said something to them. And they can remember this. I remember my experience in preschool. I, I don't remember the time I broke my leg. I knew it happened, but I don't remember it. But I remember things that were told to me. And I have such a vivid memory of who was standing where at that very moment. And I thought, he will go there and he will say something. And then she runs away to the backyard. And he runs after her because he thinks that she has his money, that she didn't give him the change. And he grabs her in the backyard and she screams. The, the scream of not just the way he hurt her. She screams the scream of 17 years of living a life being complete uncared for and, and unnoticed. And then Tel Aviv being a small city, when a, a, a woman shouts, the entire city st starts you know, to, to run and to ask what happened. And they're asking, did he hurt you? And she sobs and she says, yes. Did, did he assault you? And, and she cries and she says, yes, because she really does feel assaulted. And everybody automatically assumed that it was a sexual assault. And this is like a Cinderella moment because... This girl that nobody ever cared about becomes, transforms because she has all those funding gays of people who for the first time in her life care for her and are compassionate towards her and, and are interested in her. And she becomes this social, this poster girl of the struggle against sexual assault because we always need a poster. Just like in the real case, we needed a poster for the anti-immigration movement And this woman who claimed that she was assaulted by a, an illegal migrant was a poster girl. So in the story, she becomes a poster girl of the brave girl that dared to shout and to stop it. And she starts having other girls coming to her and saying, thank you, because thanks to you for sharing your story, I can finally share my own story. And then it becomes, she really becomes the Cinderella, this media princess And it becomes harder and harder to say that this whole Cinderella is based on a, on a light, like a dark magic, a lie about an assault that never happened. So I realized this is going to be the story. But then I couldn't sit down to write it because I just became a mother shortly before that. And I, I gave birth to a girl. And I remember... When I just told my girl for the first time, I thought, I don't know anything about her yet. I don't know what music she was going to like or, or what will she want to learn in the university. I don't even know the color of her eyes yet because, you know, it changes after three months. I know nothing about her. But because she's a girl and not a boy, I know one thing for sure. Because she lives in Israel and she's a girl, there will be a moment in her life when she will be sexually harassed. Because at least in Israel, I grew up in the 80s, the ratios was one to one. It was either not, since, uh, maybe not a severe sexual assault, but being harassed, somebody saying something, grabbing something, a boss offering something in the IDF, in the university, in, it, that was the ratio. And I thought, it's terrible that this girl, she just came into the world, we say tabula rasa, you know, like it's an open. I don't know anything, but I know this. It's written in her future because she happened to be XX and not XY. That's it. It's written there. And it was such a disturbing 
notion. And, and then I thought, if there's any chance that this is ever going to change in Israel, that we're going to change our culture and the way we view women, do I really want to be writing a story right now about a woman making up a story about a sexual assault? Because I don't know how it's here in the U.S., but in Israel, whenever a f- woman does file a complaint, they say either she wanted it or she's making that up. She's an attention seeker. In Hebrew, we say tsumi. So that's a word for an attention seeker. And she wants the, like, the social gain out of it. She's a liar. That's how they call women. She's a liar and she's making that up. So I thought, do I really want to write a story about a woman making up a story about a sexual assault when I know that most of the women don't dare to file charges against real people who sexually assaulted them simply because they're afraid that the people won't believe them or that they will be called liars. So I had this story that I wouldn't dare to sit down and write. But then I thought, if I was a man, if I was a male author, writing a story about another man who has a sexual relationship with a young girl, Lolita, Humbert Humbert and Buchel, nobody would assume that because I'm writing about one male being a pedophile, I'm saying that all men are pedophiles, right? Or if I'm writing about a man killing his landlord, that's the second time we talk about crime and punishment today, a man killing his landlord, nobody would assume that I'm saying that all men are murderers. But when I want to write a story about a woman, one woman, making up a story about a sexual assault, I'm afraid that people will say, you know, women, we've seen one, we've seen them all. So if this one is a liar, then all women are liars. And I thought, I'm now holding myself from writing a story because I'm afraid that it will be read through a very chauvinistic approach. And sometimes being an Israeli novelist, I feel it that I ask myself, am I entitled to write characters of Jews who might fit an anti-Semitic propaganda? Can I write bad Jews? Maybe. But can I write greedy Jews? Not sure. But are, I mean, I don't think all Jews are greedy. That's anti-Semitism. But am I going to say that no Jew is greedy? If we say that human behavior is complex, it means that you will find a greedy Jew out there, just like you will find a woman lying out there. And the question of do I carry, as a Jewish writer, as an Israeli writer, a responsibility to always have nice Jews in my novels or nice Israelis in my novel? Or is it that as a woman, I'm responsible to portray women only as noble or as victims of men? Or could it be that I can write this character of this woman who tells a lie without saying that all women are liars? And maybe even without saying that lying is... I mean, it, she did something bad. There's no argument about that. But in a way, I did want to try to understand her. And so I started writing, though I did shake a little bit, asking myself, am I a bad feminist or am I a bad mother to my daughter? And when The Liar was published in Israel, I, I actually had um, uh, a journalist who told me that I shouldn't have published this novel in the year of Me Too because it took me about five years to finish it, and then Me Too started. And he said he shouldn't have published it this year. He should have waited a year not to undermine Me Too and then publish it. And I remember I thought, 
it's always nice to you know to have a male journalist telling a, fe- a woman writer what a woman should or should not write or publish in a specific year and and I think we sometimes mix between the importance of a social revolution and I find me to to be one of the most important social revolutions of of my time and between the idea that literature should write the world we talked about in the previous class as it should be or as we want it to be rather than looking at things as they are which I think this is at least from my perspective the, the author's job and I also talk about empathy both for the author's job as the reader's job because I find the idea of when you pick up a novel about a liar or the previous novel was about a man doing a hit-and-run accident I love it when you read about people who do terrible things, people that if you read about them in the news, then you will make a very quick judgment, good guys, bad guys. But I love it that in literature, this distinction is challenged so that we all hate liars and we definitely hate it and runners, but I hope that through reading, instead of hating the other who's capable of this terrible, evil things, we start asking myself, not about the character in the novel, but about... ourselves and what we're capable of doing or not doing. And so I wrote it, I started going to people and harassing them with questions. I started asking people if they can recall their first lie. I'm eyeing you right now. So I'm, I'm asking, you don't have to share, but if you can recall the first time you lied, I ask people if they recall the first time they lied as kids, to, to a parent, to a teacher, to school friends. And then... I didn't always get stories, but I, also, I always got those smiles. So when people remember their life, they have this small, really interesting smile. It's like this. And, and I got back really fascinating stories of, of people. Most of the people recall the time they lied to a parent. And as a very powerful moment. And it's an interesting thing because we don't usually celebrate the first lie, right? Parents celebrate the first word. We text, I text to my parents when I child said the fr- I texted the word, and we all remember that. So people celebrate the first word a child speaks. Usually people celebrate the first day in, in elementary school. We celebrate the last day. Okay? We celebrate the first kiss. People usually remember the first time they make love. People don't celebrate that way the first time they lied. But I do think it's a developmental moment. For a child, just as the first word, because the first word is the moment the child enters the, the human society, right? It's, it's when he stops being this really sweet cub and becomes a person. And once again, he can build bridges like the, the gap we have between us. He doesn't have to scream anymore because he can just say, "Milk, I want milk." So that's a bridge. But then a few years afterwards, he finds out that he can use the same mechanism. Not as a bridge, but really to disguise himself, because most of the first lies that I got to hear was about a moment when the child it came out of great fear, the fear of losing the love of a parent or the fear of taking responsibility, but usually it came out of great fear. And then what was also really interesting was that people found it to be very disturbing to be caught in a lie, so we remember the times we're caught in a lie. It's very embarrassing. And, but people also found it to be very disturbing not to be caught in a lie. The idea that I can lie as a child 
to my father or my mother and they will never find out because they will just believe me and they can't see through me and they don't know me and they're not God. They can't see through me. It's a very, I mean, it's not a very comfortable idea. And then I went, I opened the Bible. I always open the Bible when I write at some point at each one of the novels. And I thought, I will go through the Bible and I will try to find the first lie in the Bible. Because I thought, I'm a secular person, so I don't think it was given to us by God. I think it was very powerful stories that were, went through the centuries because there is something very truthful about them, like the, the big mythologies, the great archetypes. And I thought, how long from the moment God invents ma- creates men until the moment I'll reach the first lie? How many pages will I turn before I get to the first lie? I didn't go far at all because I thought I would go to Cain and Abel. But actually, the first time man actually talks to God, the first time man opens his mouth and talks to God, the first sentence is a lie. The first time man talks to his creator, he's telling a lie. It's the story of the Garden of Eden. And God tells man, you have the entire garden. There's one thing that I ask you not to do, which is to eat from the apple. Obviously, man goes and eats from the apple. And then he's hiding. And God asks him, why are you hiding? And the truth is that he's hiding because he did the one thing that he was told not to do. But what man says to God is, I'm hiding because I don't want to be seen in front of you naked. Okay? And that's not the truth. It's not about the dress code. Okay? It's, it's about the fact that you're afraid. And I found it so interesting, the idea that this is the archetype of a father-son relationship. Right? People always talk about God as father. Okay? And we are all his kids. So here we have the archetype of what a father-son relationship is. And so soon in the relationship, you encounter the first lie. And I thought, in a way, it's like having the, the DNA of the human soul encapsulated in this part of Genesis, in this first lie. Because I think if this is what happens there, then obviously this is what happens to all of us. And then I started thinking, I started writing The Liar when I became a mom. So at first I thought about it from the perspective of the teenage girl. But then I started thinking about it from the perspective of the mother. And I asked myself, if my daughter would do such a thing, if she'll ever come to me when she's 16 and say, I, I did this, I made this story, now it's in the news, and, but it actually didn't happen, what would be my response as a mother? And obviously, I'd like to say that I would just force her to go and, and confess. That that's what I think I would do. But then I thought, really? Am, am I that sure? Because of the, the, the social consequences? I mean, she will be Googled. She, Israel is a very small country. So when she goes to, to the military, to the university, to, just to high school, everybody will call her, you're that crazy girl. She might become suicidal. I started asking myself, am I really so sure that I will force her to confess? Or could it be that I will care more about my own child than I will about this man that I never met? And it was a very disturbing question for me about, about motherhood, about what mean a mother really means. It's about protecting your child under every circumstances. Or what does it mean to protect your child? Am I supposed to protect her from the world? 
or am I supposed to protect her from what she's capable of doing? And I went to my grandmother in Tel Aviv and I asked her this question. And she didn't understand the question because for her it wasn't a question. She said, of course you, you tell her to confess. And I said, but what about the price? And she said, well, she should have thought about it before she did it. And I said, but what about how she will feel? She said, it's not about how you feel all the time. And, and then I thought that in Israel, we have this, something changed in a generation. My grandmother was brought in a kibbutz. And it was about being a good kibbutznik. It was about being a good socialist. And back then in Italy, it would be about being a good fascist, about being a good American, being a good patriot, being a good Nazi. There was this big ideology. And you brought up kids under the umbrella of this ideology. It protected them in a way, because brought under this, they just had to stay under the umbrella of the ideology, the big ideology, and they were safe. And then it was about being a good Jew or being a good Christian. But my generation, we, I don't want to be a good socialist. I don't want to be a good patriot. I don't ask myself quite often, am I a good Israeli or am I a good Jew? I just want to feel good most of the time rather than to be good most of the time. And I grow up, my kids, I'm so busy. I think my generations of parents in how they feel about each other, that's about her self-esteem and about... And when she comes back from the preschool, I ask myself, was she hurt? Was she bullied by someone? Okay, did anybody hurt her? I don't ask myself, could it be that she was hurting somebody else? I think we always tend to think about the possibility of our kids or the people who are dear to us to be hurt by some outsider rather than the possibility that somebody dear to us could be the one hurting somebody else. I think about my child as a potential victim. I never thought about her as a potential aggressor. And so I, while writing the letter, I actually shifted from thinking about the teenager perspective to thinking about parenthood and the choices that parents have with their own kids. And then there's this whole other plot of the Holocaust survivor. There's a character of a woman in the novel who is a, a Mizrahi Jew, Jew of Eastern origin, who is best friend with an Ashkenazi Jew, a Jew from European origin. And the Jew from European origin, she's a Holocaust survivor, and she's getting ready to go to Poland with a group of kids and to share with, her, with them her stories about how she survived Auschwitz. And they become best friends, and then the Holocaust survivor passes away. And the Mizrahi Jew, Jew of Eastern origin, from an Eastern country, from an Arab country, she, so she didn't experience the Holocaust, she misses her friends so much. And then comes the time when our friend was supposed to go to Poland. And they look quite the same. She takes her passport and she goes to Poland with this group of kids. And she tells the stories of her best friend who passed away. So she pretends to be a Holocaust survivor even though she was never in the Holocaust. She tells the story of her friends. In this way, she keeps her friend alive because her friend is gone and there's nobody else to tell those stories. But at the same time, she's creating a terrible, terrible lie. And she also mixes her best friend's stories with the story of the discrimination inside the Israeli culture 
of European Jews towards Jews of Eastern origin. Now my grandmother always said that there's no racism in Israel because a Jew can't be racist to another Jew. I think my grandmother was a brilliant woman, but I think here she got it a little bit wrong. And indeed, Jews of Eastern origin were discriminated in Israel, but this is a story that nobody for years wanted to hear or to acknowledge because we didn't want to think of ourselves as capable of doing things. And so this woman combines the real story that happened to her friend with the stories of her own experience of discrimination. And she's telling a terrible lie, but only through this lie she can reunite with her true friends of her friend, the true stories of her friend, and also with her true experience. And I thought about it, being a clinical psychologist, how quite often lies have encapsulated inside of them bits of truth that just have no other way to travel but within a lie. So that sometimes I find the best way with a new patient is to ask, what would you lie about? Now, people won't always share it with you, but I think if you know what is it that you would lie about, what is it that you will never say, what is it that you won't even say in therapy? I mean, you go inside, you pay so much money to get the truth, but then you, you can't say it. And I sometimes have people coming and saying, I've been lying for you for the last three years, or there's something I haven't told you for the last three years, which is actually the reason I came to therapy. I came here once a week, 50 minutes, to say the truth, and I couldn't. So we have this very ambivalent relationship with the truth as something that we seek, okay, we, we want to get it, but at the same time, we do everything we can not to get it. And when somebody tells us the truth, which is what we are supposed to seek, we're usually not very grateful. So if a friend of mine comes and says, you actually have something in your nose right now, you've been doing the entire talk with something in your nose, I'm, I will say, wow, thank you, but I will actually hate her. Even though she's doing me a favor, I will hate her for telling me the truth. Even though she gives me the opportunity to try to fix it, she's also embarrassing me because she sees something in me that I don't see. And that's why I quite often feel in therapy that when you give people a piece of truth, they're not grateful, they hate you. Okay, because we, this dedicate relationship we have with the truth, you always see it with the media, I think, that when a newspaper says we have this piece of truth, okay, about the government or about the military, we usually don't say thank you so much for giving us this piece of truth. We say you're anti-patriots, And you shouldn't be investigating this. You shouldn't be investigating us. You should be investigating the other side and what they're doing. Because we do want the truth about the other people, but we don't really, like I'm always into seeing other people having something in their nose or in their teeth. But we don't really want to see the truth about ourselves in, in the political level and I think quite often in the, in the private sphere. So that I think about my own child, that on the one hand... I know her completely. I carried her for nine months. I know her, I know her better than she knows herself, in a way. But on the other level, I look at her through this veil of love so that I don't want to know the truth about her. I think she's the sweetest girl in the entire world. And if you'd see her screaming like crazy in the airport, you wouldn't think that she's the sweetest girl in the entire world. 
And you will be probably right. But I think sometimes in a close relationship, you choose to be blind to certain elements of this person in order to be able to keep on loving this person just as much as you want to. Um, I think I will stop here for questions. Um, we have a bit of time for question and discussion, but you have to use this microphone uh, so that we get you on um, the video. Because as you, many of you know, we have all these presentations on UC television, and we want to get your questions. So if you raise your hands, I will bring the microphone around. So who would like to start? Okay, I'm going to bring the mic back to you, if you don't mind. May I stay seated? Yes. Uh, what year did you start writing um, as a novice, and then how many years thereafter did, did you first publish? I started writing... This on. I started writing when I was 27, um, so that's 11 years ago. Um, it was, once again, a real story that I heard that really caught me, and I felt that I have to try to understand why this person did what he did. It's always, all three novels start with a real story that just wouldn't let go of me, and I asked myself, how can a person do such a thing? And then when I tried to understand, I found myself sitting down and writing it. So the first novel is about, I heard the story of a Jewish man that went to Europe in the eve of Second World War. There was a boat of Jewish men that left uh, pre-mandatory Palestine, was under British uh, rule back then, and they sailed into Europe, which was a crazy thing to do if you were Jewish back then. They sailed into Europe to marry women, Jewish women, because that was the only way to get Jewish women out of Europe back then. If you married them in Europe, they could leave, and then the British people would let you come inside the country. That was the only way to get them in if they were married. So this group of men sailed to Europe to rescue women, and then they came back, and they all had a, a very fast divorce. So there were like 100 divorces that day, same rabbi. And there was this one guy that refused to give a get. Get is the, by the Jewish law, you cannot get divorced as a woman if your husband doesn't give you a get. And he refused because he fell in love with the woman on the boat so much that he actually refused giving her a get. And when I heard this story, he was already dead by then. And she was in her late 80s. But this story was just so alive that everybody in the village told me this and said he's such... I won't say the word in English, but they say, like, he's such a terrible person. I thought, he's already dead. She's, I mean, in her age, and she, they said she was the most beautiful woman in the world. So they kept on talking about how beautiful she is and how, what a terrible person he is, even though he was dead already. And I thought, there's something in this story that makes the entire village, you know, like villages in French, they passed on the recipes. They passed on this story. And then I asked, just like in the lie, what kind of person can do such a thing? What kind of person goes all the way to Europe to rescue a woman and ends up holding her like this, you know, by the power of, of Jewish religious law? 
So it was once again about trying to understand. It was once again about thinking of him as a bad guy and then trying to, to think of him about what makes me do terrible things or hold on to things even though they're not mine. And, and so I started, I started writing it. And it took, it, it took me three years to write it. And then um, a friend of mine who's an author sent it to his editor who hated it. I still remember the email. And in Israel, it's very direct. I know in America, when you say no, it's uh, thank you so much. Nah, nah, nah. Sadly, we wish we could, but in Israel, it's, it's a no. <laughs> so, and then my friend insisted, and he told her, so send it to another editor in the publishing house, because I really believe in it. And the other editor um, didn't say no. So I really owe a lot to, to this friend. Another question? I'm here with the mic. Comments? Thank you. Thank you for your wonderful talk. Can't wait to read your, your book. Um, do you write, I, I assume you write in Hebrew, so who does your translating for you? And the name of my English translator is uh, Sandra Silverstein. And that's a big topic, actually, because... In Hebrew, words have, uh, names have meaning. So this name of the character in Liar, her name is Nofar. Nofar in Hebrew is a water lily. And she's a girl, and you know how the name represents the fantasies of the parents about what kind of child I'm going to have? So the parents, they, you think about the name before you have the child. So the name is not about the child, it's about the parents' inspiration of what kind of child I'm going to get. So she's called a water lily, and her parents are saying she's going to blossom like a water lily. But she doesn't blossom, okay? And, and so she has this burden of this huge, huge flower that she carries here. She was supposed to be like a flower, but she's not. And she, she, her friend, his name is Levi. Levi in Hebrew is a lion. And his dad is this macho guy that called his boy lion because he had this fantasize of the boy being strong like a lion, but the boy is more food for lions than, than a lion. And this boy also, he, has this, he carries this lion on his shoulder because he can't become a lion. And if you read the Hebrew, it's just embedded in the names. The moment you, you read Nofar and Levi, you get that there's an, an irony between the name and between the character. In English... I had, we had a conference of translators in Jerusalem, in Mishkanot uh, Shananim. And we had different translators coming to talk about the, the translation. And then the French translator said, it means nothing. And Nofar in French, I don't speak French, but she said that it even has, um, like the, the, it doesn't echo well for, uh, for a female name. I don't know. And she said, maybe you can call them Nymphea, Nymphea, like the, the flower, like the water lily, and uh, La Vie, you can call him uh, Leo, li lion in French. And the Italian translator said, great, let, let's just do that. Let's just make them Nymphea and Leo instead of Nofar and La Vie. And on the one hand, that's so tempting because you want your reader to, to get all the different meanings that, that you put into it. You don't want to think that as the book travels, it loses part of its meanings. But then you think, I don't know who Nymphea and Leo are. I never met them. I didn't spend five years with them. 
they don't walk the streets of Tel Aviv. They might walk the streets of Paris and, and Rome, but they don't walk the streets of Tel Aviv. And if I will do it, they won't be themselves anymore, in a way. So the, the whole process of translation, I think, is, is very, very tricky when you want to, to make, to enable a book to, to travel. More questions? Another question or comment? Just to follow up on the translation issue, how about keeping the Hebrew name and just having a little note so that the reader knows what it means in Hebrew, and yet for you it keeps the the flavor of the Hebrew name? I don't know. I feel dots. I'm trying to, to uh, march, do you say march, assimilate, diffuse myself? What's the word in English? I'm trying to forget about the real world. I give money to a book so that the book will give me in return a completely different universe where I will forget about myself for a bit and be completely emerged. And for me, a dot is as if you would touch my shoulder, tell me, you know, this is not real, and it was also translated, and I just feel it as like you get into and you, you drag me outside. But maybe it's because my like I'm not well attuned when I'm reading. And, but it is, it's a big question, and I know sometimes they, I think... In the Korean version, and also in Portuguese, they do it, and maybe they're more fluent in getting out and getting in. And I don't know, but for, for me, it's difficult. In how many languages have you been translated? Um, okay. Okay, so I trust you. <laughs> um, so probably 14. So, 14? Uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure, because I think Waking Lies, is, I think it's more, maybe the lie is 14, I'm not sure. Okay, I will, I will trust you. Um, I think when you try to travel with a story, you always have this question of, is the story particular or universal? Are we talking about something that could only happen in Tel Aviv, or are we talking about something that could happen just as well tomorrow in Santa Barbara? And as a reader, I find it, what I love about literature is the idea that you can read a story that is set in a country that you never visited, with people who speak a language that you don't speak and are of different gender than myself or nationality of myself, but I will feel for them. I will cry for them more than I cry about things that happened in, in my real life. And I feel it's really a, a moment of, like a humanistic act of reading, right? Is that you can gain empathy for people who are, who are different from yourself because you spend so long with them when, when you read them. And I think that's why when you read literature and translation, it's not just about the specific novel. You're also making a statement. When I, that's what I feel when I go in and get literature and translation into Hebrew. For me, it's making a statement saying, I want to, I acknowledge the fact that people are people, even if they're not from my own city, like my, not Jewish, not Israeli. And, and I love this concept. For, I mean, I find it inspiring. Oh, somebody else has a question. I just want to follow up on the lies. Um, there is also such a cultural, uh, so many cultural differences in approaching what we consider the truth or what's appropriate to mm -hmm. say. Uh, you were mentioning like 
a publisher in America will say, well, thank you very much. We really love your work, but we at this point cannot really mm -hmm. um, publish it versus in Israel will say, well, no, we're not publishing it, bingo. And I come from from French culture where we're more of the, on the side of saying, no, we don't want this. Not so nice or polite as the American would be. And I, I've had that experience as, as being transferred from France to America when I would go and talk my opinions to a party and people would say, how interesting. And I would come home, tell my husband, you know, people find me interesting. And he said, let me translate for you. <laughs> they think you're full of it, but they are being American nice. You know, that's a, so lie is not just lies. I mean, they are lies that don't transfer from one culture to the next. I, I very much agree. And I found it really interesting that while I was writing Liar and my girl grew up while I was struggling with the novel, I found that in the same day, in the morning, she lies and I'm telling her you should never lie to your mother. Okay? She's saying that her little brother fell. He didn't fall. You pushed him. So I'm saying don't lie. And then we go to dinner, Shabbat dinner, and she tells to one grandmother, actually, I really prefer the food of the other grandmother. Her cakes are so much better. And I'm dragging her to the side. And I'm saying, never, never tell one grandmother that you prefer the cooking of another grandmother. And she looks at me like this, and I'm thinking I'm at the same time teaching her how not to lie and how to, I, I mean, I'm lying right now when I tell her never lie to your mother. I lie to my mother. No, she called me today. I was doing a beautiful hike, and I told her later that I didn't see her call. I saw her call. I just didn't want to answer her. And then... We have in Hebrew, I think also in English, the concept white lies, you have it? Which I really like as a concept, that it comes in colors. We have a collection. But the idea of a white lie, so that when I didn't answer my mother, I said to myself, well, it's a white lie that I'm saying I didn't see your call because I don't want to insult her. I'm, I'm doing it actually for altruistic reasons because I care for her so much. That's a white lie, but it's actually a self-lie because what we usually do is that other people are liars. They're lying. My lies are white. Okay? That's a self-lie because usually what we do is we don't want to take full responsibility over our choices. I don't want to say to her, it's a beautiful hike. I don't want to talk to you right now. I'll talk to you tomorrow. I don't want to take responsibility over my choice. And then I decide for her what kind of truth she's willing to bear. I'm doing it for my own reasons, and I have the, the nerve to say that I'm also doing it for her. I always find, in Liar, I really tried to think about this embroidery of lies. So about each character, I ask myself, what will this character lie about? And not necessarily the big lies, the cliché lies, but the, the areas in her life that are just so unbearable to her to face that she would lie about them. And, and I really try to, because I think sometimes a lie is, is the, you know, it's the material that a nation is made of, right? We have those stories that glue us together, okay? We have the story that glues Israelis together. There's the story that glues Americans together. Is this myth reality, the self-made man, the American dream? Is it reality? Is it a lie? But it, it puts people together. Maybe we don't want to question that too much because we need that. So when my partner tells me this dress looks amazing on you about every possible dress, 
you can wonder or you can choose not to wonder. Uh, let's thank Ayelet for this wonderful presentation. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.